Turn, please, in the scripture to uh, Romans and chapter 1. Romans and chapter 1, please. I want to read verses 1 through 7. Romans and chapter 1. As you find that, let's again pray. Father in heaven, say that your words are light to our feet, a lamp to our path. It's God breathed. It's your word to us. So we pray that it would have its work in us. And on this day particularly, to convince us that Christ has been raised and raised in power. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 1, verse 1. Paul, the servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And together we say, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. What I want us to see, God will help us, and I believe he will. What I want us to see on this Easter morning is that the Holy Spirit declared in the resurrection of Jesus that Jesus is the Son of God in power. Hold on to that. That Jesus is the Son of God in power. Now, let me work up to that. And Paul is writing this letter to a group of people in Rome. Um, he refers to himself as we see uh, a servant of Christ Jesus that is as one who knows he's been bought with a price just like the rest of us. He's a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's no longer his own. None of us who claim the name of Christ is our own. So Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, but he's called to be an apostle, a particular messenger called by Jesus for a particular purpose, as we'll see, to take the gospel to the nations. So he's set apart for the gospel of God, and it's God's gospel. It's the gospel of God. It wasn't Paul's gospel. It was the, it's the gospel of God. It didn't originate with Paul. In fact, uh, he's to say it, it's not utterly new. In other words, the prophets spoke of it, came into being with the person of Christ, but it, the prophets spoke of it. And notice how Paul puts it. He says, he said, he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. In other words, when the prophets were writing the scripture, God was speaking through them. This Old Testament, Paul would say, is God breathed. In fact, Paul would say the writings that we have in the New Testament are God breathed as well. It was God speaking through the prophets, even as they wrote in the Holy Scriptures. The word scriptures just simply means writings. What makes them holy is that it's God breathed writings, thus the holy writings, the holy scriptures. And notice, he calls it gospel. And this word gospel, as we know, means that it's an announcement, it's news, and we say the meaning of gospel is good news, and that's true. But it's news. That is, it's something that must be 
reported, must be declared. There's a little statement attributed, most think falsely, to St. Francis of Assisi. And the, 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 um, the quote is this, that uh, we're to preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. Now, most say that Francis would never have said this since he was a prolific preacher, but his point, if he said anything like it, would simply be this, that the messenger must be credible, that is to say, that the messenger needs to be one who lives out what he preaches. Um, but to preach the gospel always requires words. It's a declaration. It's news. Oh, yes, we live out the implications of the gospel. But please understand that when we're evangelizing, when we're spreading the gospel, it's because we're speaking. It's because we're declaring something. In fact, Paul will come to this way later in this letter in Romans chapter 10 when he says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And then he asks the question, how will they hear? How will they hear unless someone is sent? And how will they hear unless someone is sent who preaches to them, who declares this truth? Live it out, please. But understand that we're talking about sharing the gospel. It's a declaration of something. It's news. It's got to be reported. There's got to be words to it, not just how we live. How we live may bring credibility to the words we speak, but it's got to be declared, you see. And it's news, as he puts it here, concerning his son. See, there isn't any news without his son. There isn't anything to say without, without Jesus. Uh, we've said so many times, um, and I'll say it one more time, that you can take Muhammad out of Islam and still have Islam as long as you have Muhammad's teachings, if you will. Take Buddha out of Buddhism and still have Buddhism as long as you have his teachings. You can take Moses out of the Old Testament, and as long as there is written what Moses wrote. But you can't take Jesus out of Christianity. Because if you do, you have absolutely nothing. Christianity really is Christ. This gospel, this good news, if there's any good news for human beings from God, it concerns his son. As if God says, I want to tell you about my son. I want you to tell you about Jesus Christ the Lord. I want you to tell him, I want to tell you about him. It's, this is the good news that I have for you. This is the news I sent him, my son. It concerns my, my son. And, and, and he makes a distinction here, a contrast. He says, I want you to, to, to understand my son first as one who's a descendant from David according to the flesh. And then was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. He says, first, I want you to see his humanity and his calling concerning his son who is descended from David according to the flesh. Now, here's what we believe about Jesus. We believe him to be the eternal second person of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's the divine person, the Son. The divine person with divine nature who always has been. All right? 
And then we say that at a particular moment in history, the Son, the divine person, the Son, took on human nature as well. Didn't give up his divinity. It wasn't a subtraction, but it was an addition. But he took on human nature as well as his divine nature. And he was born to this woman named Mary, who was a virgin, which means that this child in her was not conceived in the normal way through sexual intimacy between a man and a woman, but was conceived, as we have it, by the Holy Spirit. We see that in the, in the birth narratives of Jesus. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Um, and so now, who is he? This divine person has two natures, human and divine. Oh, we see this spoken in the scripture. John himself puts it, the apostle John puts it in John chapter 1 like this. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And so we get it. He was with God in the beginning. He is God. He's the very word of God to come to us. He's the life. And in this most memorable, most memorable of all verses, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In fact, uh, during this week of Holy Week, we saw this as well on Monday, Thursday, just this past Thursday evening, uh, in this passage in John 13, verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things to his hand, into his hands and that he had come from God as going back. And so when he came, it wasn't that he didn't exist before. He's existed throughout all eternity. He simply came to take on this human nature. In fact, when Jesus was praying that night, we have it in John 17, in verse 5, he prays, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. So he existed before the world existed, and he existed in glory, the very glory of God, and now he comes and makes his Home among us, probably as most laid out a passage we have concerning the incarnation is in Philippians in chapter 2. The apostle, verse 5, writes, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He emptied himself, not of his deity, not of his divine nature, but he emptied himself of the glory that was due him, the honor that was due him. And he humbled himself by taking on our likeness, body and soul, human being, Jesus, divine If you know me, you know that one of my 
favorite uh, Christmas hymns is by Charles Wesley. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. I don't know how you could put it better. His glory was veiled by this humanity that he took on. And don't you love to read the Gospels? I mean, as I read the Gospels and read about Jesus, it fascinates me, uh, captivates me. Because here he is doing miracles. Yet he gets tired and needs to eat. Tired needs to sleep, hungry needs to eat. He experiences human emotions of joy and even grief. I mean, at the tomb of Lazarus, he grieves deeply. Even though he knows he's going to raise him from the dead. Who is this person? He isn't schizophrenic. He's one person, two natures. He acts, acts consistent always with his human and, and his divine nature. That's why if you were ever given the question, define the Son of God and give two examples, you couldn't. Right? There aren't two examples. He's unique. That's why when God gives his gospel, he said, it concerns my son. There isn't anyone like him. He came to do what needed to be done for humanity to save them. We see it too. That he's a descendant of David. We, we saw this on Palm Sunday. The great throngs of people. Hosanna. Uh, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Son of David they called him. Because when they used this expression son of David. They, it was an expression that Messiah was coming. The one who would be the Christ. The anointed. Not only the priest and the prophet. But also the anointed king to rule over God's people. But a greater one than David would come. That was their hope always. And so as a descendant from the from David, from the seed of David, we get this sense, yes, he's the very one who's going to be this Messiah, be this Savior, be this Deliverer, be this King, the one to conquer all the enemies of the, of the people of God. Um, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men, the seed of David. We find that he comes in Humility, the theological term for this is the humiliation of Jesus. The humiliation of God to come and to take upon himself uh, humanity in, in, this, in this way. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in First, 2 Corinthians chapter 13 that Jesus was crucified in weakness. He was taken. He will gave himself, but yet in his weakness, he gave himself over to this, to the, this death. You know, that day, that Good Friday, that time when Jesus is dying, uh, it appears as if 
There's no strength in him at all. It's all zapped from him. In fact, his, his very life, he really dies. And it's important for us to understand that, that he really dies. He really does. There's no life in this person. At that moment, he's physically, as every human being, the life taken out of him is dead. He's died. We have to know that he's died in order to really know that he's raised because he really is raised from the dead. And that's something we have to, to embrace as believers. What does the scripture says? I use it this morning as our um, assurance of salvation. That we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. We believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. He really truly was raised from the dead. Now, when we say raised from the dead, we don't mean that it was just a spiritual resurrection. I mean, it was a real bodily resurrection, that he has a body. And it's not just a resuscitated body. It's a new body. It's a body that resembles the old body. You can see him go, that's Jesus. But it's a different body in the sense that it's incorruptible, imperishable. It'll never die. You know, when Lazarus was brought back to life, he was, in a sense, resuscitated. He was given life back in his old body. Poor guy was going to die again. But not Jesus. He was raised. This is a resurrected life. And never to die. Incorruptible body. And it isn't a resurrection as some will probably preach today in our city. That it's a resurrection in our hearts. Or that he's raised in a sense that he lives in our memories to be a good example for us, to, to motivate us to, to love and mercy and compassion and grace and all of that. No, he is. He is an example for us, an unattainable one, but he is an example for us, of course. And his love does motivate us, that's for sure. But the point of fact is that he conquered sin and he conquered death. He did something when he died. Something happened. The scripture says in Romans 6, later in this little letter, that, 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 that when he died, we died. When he rose, we rose as, rose as believers in Christ united to him, you see. If all I needed was a good example, you would think I'd be way better. But no, you see, I, I need, as I put it, when I share my own testimony, I need what Jesus did. And only Jesus, the Son of God, could do it, you see. Only Jesus, the Son of God, could do it. And that he rose from the dead was clear in the scripture. I mean, Jesus said he would. He kept telling his disciples that he was going to go up to Jerusalem and, and, and suffer at the hands of the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law. He'd be killed and then raised on the third day. If he hadn't been raised, his disciples would have said, he lied to us. Disciples would have said, he didn't know what he's talking about. What he said was going to happen didn't happen, and so they wouldn't believe in him. But, but because he was raised, everything changed then. Uh, that's this gospel good news. Everything changed at that point. Their cowardice uh, led them to be now confessors of Jesus and professors of Jesus to go out and tell everyone and even die what they knew to be true because they had seen Jesus. They knew it to be true because they had 
had seen him, you see. They preached. The very first sermon that was preached after the ascension of Jesus, after the day of Pentecost, was preached by the apostle Peter. And here's what he says. He says, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, and that by his resurrection. Now he declares him to be Lord, but we all know him to be the Christ, he says. So he preaches. In fact, you read through the New Testament, you'll find again every sermon, account after account of the resurrection of Jesus, underpinning everything that's being said, everything that's being taught, everything we're to believe, has as, the, as its, its foundation, if you will, the crucifixion, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And because he's alive, you see the very end of this book that we read, in the end of the book of Revelation, we read this, these words, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. So Paul wants us to know that yes, he came in the flesh, but now by, the, by his resurrection, He's declared to be son of God, not in weakness, but son of God in power. Now, now how does the resurrection of Jesus declare him to be son of God in power? Well, first it says, his resurrection, that he conquered sin and death. We we know that by his resurrection. If he stayed dead, we wouldn't know it. In fact, if he had stayed dead, then sin and death would have defeated him. But because he rose, we know that he defeated sin and death. How do we know that? We know it because the wages of sin is death. So Jesus died. And we have to say, why did he die? He had no sin. And then we realize, oh, he took ours. And then once it was paid, he was free to go. Well, once it was paid, once, he, once the sin was paid for, he had no sin in himself, then he was free, free to be resurrected, free to live. And so his resurrection is this announcement that I paid it. It's paid in full. It's finished. It's over. He was raised, son of God, in power, the powerful son of God who defeats sin and death for us. And of course, in his resurrection, he's exalted. If I could finish reading the passage from Philippians in chapter 2, if you haven't turned to that, if you could. Verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he is in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's what Paul calls him 
in Romans 1. Jesus is humanity. Christ, Messiah, the anointed one, the priest who makes sacrifice, the priest who is sacrifice, the prophet who declares, who teaches, who brings truth. He is truth. King, the one who now rules and reigns over all things. He's exalted. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Just one book back to your left. Ephesians chapter 1. It's a long sentence. And that begins in verse 15. Let me read the whole of it. It's a prayer of Paul's. He says, for this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in all my prayers. But the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritances and saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power. This is what I'm after. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You see, now Jesus is exalted and he's seated at the right hand of the Father and he rules and reigns over all things. And notice, it says he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. He rules and reigns, you see, as the head of the church and the head of everything. For the blessing of his people, for the building of his church, for the spreading of his of his word. And he says, I want you to know this power. See, as the Holy Spirit is given on Pentecost, we know Jesus is the Son of God in power. He pours out his spirit so that we might be empowered, you see, as his people, to witness for him, and to live in a way that pleases him. Oh, his, his power, of course, brings forgiveness of sins and assurance of forgiveness of sins. We know that. We know that his power has overcome our sin to save us, to reconcile us to God, to be adopted into his family. Meditate upon this word justified. Before God, I'm declared righteous just as if I've never sinned, just as if I've always obeyed. Do not thrill your soul. We receive, you see, we know this forgiveness of sins. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies, who will condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. We know, therefore, we've been reconciled to him, united with him. We don't need to be anxious. I mean, was it just crazy talk in Matthew 6 when Jesus said, don't be anxious about anything? 
what in the world was he saying? Especially to us now. Well, for people throughout all history. But he said, I know what I'm talking about here. My Heavenly Father loves you. I'm proof of it. So why are you worried? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all the other things that you need will be added to you. That doesn't mean if we go into vocational ministry, then we don't have to do anything else or this and that. No, he means through the, he'll provide for you for various means. You'll see it. You'll see his provision. But have your mind set, your heart set, not on idols, but have your mind set upon, upon pleasing him. Have your mind set upon pleasing him. He'll take care of you. Not as a reward, but as part of the life that he's given to you. Trust him. Don't be anxious, you see. Don't be anxious about anything, for God cares for you. He really does mean, the apostle does, when he says all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And his purpose is to conform us to his image and to glorify us. He says, he says he's going to work everything out in your life as a believer in Jesus. Trust him. How can he do that? Because he rules and reigns over everything. Nothing can thwart him from doing that. Not the risen Jesus. He's the son of God in power. Nothing can stop him from that. Nothing can stop his word from progressing in the world. Why? Because he's sovereign. Why? Because he rules and reigns over his word. And so he says, my word will fulfill its purpose. It won't return to me void. I know exactly the purpose for which I intend it. And so as we, with his word upon our lips, living it out in our lives, but his word upon our lips as we go, he's ruling and reigning over it. It's his word. It'll do his work. He says, spread it. He says, take it. He says, preach it. And he's sovereign over its effect. It is his word. He rules and reigns over it. He guarantees our perseverance. He says, listen, church, you will survive. And not only survive, but you will grow in grace. How does he put it in Hebrews in chapter 7? Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And why this consequently? Because he lives forever. As long as he lives, we'll be protected. As long as he lives, we're safe. Why? Because he's the son of God in power. And he will, in fact, keep us. You know, his resurrection the Son of God in power guarantees ours. He's the firstborn, the scripture says, from the dead. He's the firstborn among many brothers. What does that mean? He's just the first. It means he's going to bring everyone else who believes in him along with him. And then why is that significant? Well, firstly, because we all die. I know that we don't like to think about it. We don't like to talk about it. In fact, I've said on many occasions with people, death is always a surprise. Even a couple of months ago when I sat with my father and watched 
him deteriorate and, and come to the point of death. When he stopped breathing, it was like a surprise to me. I don't know why he was 101. Uh, we'd seen it coming in his last month or so. But still, there's such a difference between life and not life. Life and death. That it's just a, su- a surprise. And you sit there and I kept waiting. I kept watching him like, he, surely he's going to breathe. I mean, that's what he does. But he didn't. Death really happens. And to have one who's conquered it gives a great joy, a great assurance to know that what we will all experience, which we're all helpless to keep from happening to us, we know that he's conquered it in such a way that will bring life. And a day will come when he'll resurrect all his people. And, and here is the consummation of, of it all. And it's certain and it's sure. I mean, I don't know anyone, Christian or not, that I talk to and I ask the question, do you think the world is as it should be? I, I don't know anybody who says, yeah, this is, everything's great. But you see, Jesus has come and conquered sin and death. And at the resurrection, what we'll know is that he'll restore everything as it is to be, as it, as it was meant to be by God. He'll, he'll take all that Adam was lost in Adam because of his sin, and he'll, he'll restore it, and it'll even be better than anything we could ever imagine, better than Eden was for Adam. The very people of God living, God with us, heavens and earth the new heavens and the new earth, always. There will be no more tears. There'll be no more injustice. There'll be no more prejudice. There'll be no more anger. There'll be no more disease. There'll be no more war. I love to tell my engineer friends in this glory, everything will work perfectly. And you'll see in your life, you've been trying to make things work and fix things and built things. And in glory, you'll walk around and you go, yes, this is exactly what was in my heart all that time. I see it now. And you just walk around amazed. And you think, I'm glad I did it on earth because now I see it. And for all you physicians and doctors and medical people, you walk around this place and you go, this is exactly what I was hoping for. This is what I gave my life to. This is what I, I really wanted everybody to be better and everybody's better. Look at this. And you'll rejoice and then say, I'm so glad. Now I know why I did that. Right? Are you teachers? Everybody will know everything. As I can figure. And you go, Whew. no late papers. You know, everybody gets it. This is, this is, this is what I've longed for my, my whole life. I, I, I see it. All you lawyers and judges, and you'll see perfect justice. And you'll say, yes, this is, this is what I've longed for all my life. So now I know why I worked for it so hard. Because I, this is it. All of us can see it. Because Christ has been raised, none of our labor in the Lord is in vain. Nothing we do to the glory of God is in vain. 
1 Corinthians 15. Why? Because we'll see it in its perfection upon the resurrection. That's the hope. He's the son of God with power. That's why we celebrate. He came in weakness, and in weakness he gave himself that we might live. He was risen in power to rule and reign over all that he had done to bring his people by the spreading of his word to glory. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us that we would really get it, that we'd really understand this truth. I pray I would, and Father, to live in it. We give you thanks that on this day we can say that Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. We can rest in the truth of the gospel, sins forgiven, justified, adopted, your work of sanctification in us, the future glory. We know that the kingdom has come in Jesus, that he rules and reigns even now for our good and the glory of God. We know that we needn't fear. Please enable us to rest in your wisdom, your power, your love. May the resurrection power of Jesus work in us to minister to one another that we may grieve as he did with those who grieve and rejoice as he did with those who rejoice. Father, stay close to those who suffer. Bring healing to those who suffer illness and disease. I'm thinking this morning of Joel Tigreen. I pray for him. That your blessing would be upon him in these days. Our heart's desire remained that he be healed, but work in him and his family that they're able to see you work in such a way that would cause them to be in awe of you, be with Roger and Annette, his parents, give them strength. And Father, bring healing and help to all in our congregation who are suffering. Pray for those who suffer for the sake of the gospel. May you enable them to rejoice and be glad for they're being treated as the prophets, but still, I pray we not forget them, but to pray for them and do all we can to support them. For those who suffer oppression and injustice and are victims of hatred, we pray that you would bring relief. We pray you'd work through your people to bring hope and help, that we'd live in this world in such a way that you'd be glorified and the hope of the gospel would be heard and received. Father, we're grateful for the distribution of vaccines in our country and throughout the world, and we pray that these would be effective and that people would be kept from illness and death. Continue to give wisdom to those who are in authority over us and wisdom to us as well. God, reign over the gospel in our church, in our city, throughout our country and the world. May the gospel on this day go out and in the days ahead that your word may spread rapidly and be honored. Please, God, take us again to the empty tomb. Enable us to grasp the profound blessing that is ours because Christ is risen. May we know the new life that's ours in him. May we know that you lead us. May we follow you in paths of righteousness. May we even walk through the valley of the shadow of death without fear, knowing that you're with us. 
May we be comforted by your word to teach us, to correct us, discipline us. By your gracious and mighty hand to rescue us. Refresh us, God, in these days with the presence of your spirit within us that we may be filled with joy, knowing that we belong to you. That still goodness and mercy will follow us each and every day and all the days of our lives. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.